love a good courtroom scene. Movies like The Rainmaker or Runaway Jury have been very popular in the past. Books like To Kill a Mockingbird are still read widely by lots of people. Even shows like Judge Judy and uh, Judge Mathis are still on TV every day, so some, some people must enjoy them. We all love a good courtroom drama scene where there's a defendant who's presumed innocent until guilty, proven guilty. There's a judge that oversees the case. There's usually a jury, sometimes there is, sometimes there isn't, and there's also that prosecuting attorney that tries to prove the person guilty, as well as the audience that gets to sit in the back and watch everything going on. And for the passage today that we're looking at, you and I are gonna be in the audience of a court scene. See, Israel has left their godly ways. They're not following God like they should have been. So God's got a bone, sort of, to pick with them, and he's going to try their case in front of us as we read about it today. And the truth is that most of us have struggles in our lives. God might find a case against us in our sin. So as we sit in the audience watching this court case take place in front of us, we need to think about if we might be the next defendant to be tried by God, who serves as the prosecutor, the judge, and the jury. So what we see here in Malachi chapter 1, verses 6 through 14, is like a courtroom scene. Israel is sitting in the defendant chair, and God makes an accusation, he presents his evidence, and then he declares a verdict. So let's go ahead and look at this accusation that God makes in verse 6, where the problem is pointed out by God. He says in verse 6, A son honors his father, and a servant his master. Then if I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my respect? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests, who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? The problem is that these people are not giving God the honor that he deserves. He'll explain a little later uh, the actions and attitudes under his evidence, but what he presents here is that honor is the issue. God's not getting the honor that he deserves. See, God had made a covenant with Abraham in the book of Genesis to make Israel a holy nation. Then he gave this law to Israel to further clarify it, and he delivered them out of Egypt. And then he made his king David, this strong, mighty king in Israel, this strong and mighty nation, and had blessed them. But the people weren't giving God honor in return like they should have been. See, the regular sacrifices that the people brought to God were a way of praising him for what he had done, as well as a way to regularly cleanse their sins before him. And there were many sacrifices that differed in nature in Israel in the Old Testament. Some were for forgiveness and acceptance. Others were for dedication and celebration. We don't know exactly what the occasion of these sacrifices are that Malachi talks about, whether it was a Sabbath day offering or a sin offering, Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, Passover, we're not sure. But that's not important. What is important is doing the sacrifices in the right way. And these offerings had to pass two important tests that only the people offering them and God would know about. They had to be the first and the best. They had to be the first 
of the flock or the first of the grain or whatever it might be. They had to be the first yield, first of it. They also had to be the best quality. They had to be unblemished and perfect. And this was because to bring God a poor quality of offering showed that you thought of God in a poor way. You needed to bring a perfect offering to show that you thought God was perfect. So those sacrifices had to be perfect because those sacrifices pointed to the perfect Lamb of God, which would be Jesus Christ that comes a few hundred years later and how he would cleanse our sins. So those perfect sacrifices symbolized the future sacrifice that would be made on our behalf. But it's important to note here that no one in the Old Testament was ever saved through sacrifices to God. The sacrifices were a way to maintain their relationship with God. The law, um, nowhere in the Old Testament does it say, you know, this person slaughtered this lamb and he got saved. The law and sacrifices were a means of sanctification for the people, not salvation. Salvation came through faith in God. Sanctification came through animals and offerings in the Old Testament. And the problem here that God has, he starts with the priests. And he addresses them here, and he says at the end of verse 6, O priests who despise my name. The message here is addressed to priests directly, but because of their failures, the nation of Israel was also guilty as well. And Israel invites God to present the case here, when they respond to God at the very end of verse 6, they say, How have we despised your name? So God responds, You ask me, let me tell you how you have messed up. And this is where we get to look at the evidence that God presents against Israel in this case. That the priests and the people are not honoring God the way they should. In verses 7 through 13, we get to see this evidence that God presents that shows that they are guilty. And God first points out his evidence against Israel in verses 7 and 8, and then 12 and 13. And he starts by listing, if you notice here, he starts by listing their actions in verses 7 and 8. He says in verses 7 and 8, You are presenting defiled food upon my altar. But you say, How have we defiled you? In that you say, The table of the Lord is to be despised. Verse 8, but when you present the blind for sacrifice, is it not evil? And when you present the lame and the sick, is it not evil? Why not offer it to your governor? Would he be pleased with you? Or would he receive you kindly, says the Lord of hosts. So the things that Israel is doing shows that they don't honor God. And the text says there at the beginning of verse 7, they were presenting defiled food upon God's altar. And notice this is in the present tense. It's not just a past sin they accidentally did once upon a time. This is something they were regularly doing as part of their worship of God. It was a regular occurrence. And the sacrifices here are called food, which is probably symbolic and actual. We don't really think of sacrifices being food, but he calls them food here. It was symbolic because when they would put those sacrifices on the altar and they would burn up, it was kind of like food offered to God on his behalf. But it was also practical because there were some sacrifices where the priests would eat uh, what was offered to God, and the people would even share in that food from time to time. So they're kind of lumping all the sacrifices together here by calling them food. 
but what they were offering did not match up with the standards set forth by the law or God's holy character. And there were two important reasons for this. One, the sacrifice was supposed to be a gift offered to God, and the kind of gift that some, someone offers to God indicates what they think of God, like I shared a little bit earlier. The second thing is that some of the offerings were sin offerings as a way to sanctify Israel. So they're supposed to bring, Israel was supposed to bring an unblemished animal to God to cleanse their blemishes. But if they bring a blemished animal to God, it doesn't really cleanse their sins that they're asking for forgiveness from. So the food that they brought was defiled, as we read in verse 7. But in verse 8, Malachi reveals those sacrifices didn't match up to God's standard. He says here in verse 8, they were presenting, he calls them, the blind for sacrifice and the lame and the sick. See, bringing healthy, unblemished animals to sacrifice could get expensive over time. So the people, probably encouraged by the priests, started to cut corners. These animals were diseased, crippled, blind, and lame. They most likely couldn't have used these animals for anything else. So they decided, well, we'll just give them to God. They're going to get burnt up anyway. But God doesn't deserve the runt of the litter, and that's what God is saying to them here. So in verses 7 and 8, he lists the actions and how they don't match up to God's character. Then in verses 12 through 13, God describes the attitudes of the people and how doing those things with these attitudes doesn't match up his name and his holiness. Verses 12 and 13 read, But you are profaning it in that you say, The table of the Lord is defiled, and as for its fruit, its food is to be despised. You also say, my, how tiresome it is, and you disdainfully sniff at it, says the Lord of hosts, and you bring what was taken by robbery and what is lame and sick, so you bring the offering. Should I receive that from your hand, God says. So the manner in which Israel is offering sacrifices shows they don't honor God. They're going through the motions of giving sacrifices, but their attitude shows they don't care to honor God with what they are doing. And it says here in verse 12, they profaned God's name when they said, the table of the Lord is defiled. As for its fruit, its food is to be despised. That's the word of Israel. And what they said, this was supposed to be God's holy table, but it's not being used for that purpose. They're kind of mindlessly just going through the motions. Instead of reverence for God, it has simply become ritual. It was supposed to be sacred, but it has become defiled. And here, God even puts Israel on the witness stand to let them defend themselves as we transition from verse 12 to 13. As if God wants to say, okay, maybe there's a good reason you're doing this. And he lets them explain themselves in verse 13. But they showed their laziness for the sacrifices, saying in verse 13, My, how tiresome it is. These people aren't even trying, even trying to follow the law. Giving God's sacrifices seems to have become a burden to them. And they showed their apathy for the sacrifices in verse 13, where they say, uh, where it says, You disdainfully sniff at it. You disdainfully sniff at those sacrifices. 
And when it says sniff, it means be little. The message paraphrase puts it this way. It says, you act so superior, sticking your noses in the air. So this idea of sniffing at it was an expression of a loud, quick breathing out through the nose. It was kind of a gesture of disgust that they would give. So at this point, we need to transfer what we're reading here for Israel into our lives. We need to ask ourselves if God might have any evidence against us. Are there actions we're doing that violate God's name and God's holiness? And here's a few things that I thought about as I reflected on this passage. Are we spending more time scrolling on Facebook than we are reading God's word? Do we talk badly about people and gossip about them instead of encouraging and talking positively about them and showing them love? Are we watching things that are harmful to our emotions and others, such as R-rated movies or porn or things that are very graphic and distasteful and promote sinful lifestyle instead of a sanctified life? Those are a few personal ones. Here's a few ones for even for me and the church. Do we design church services that are have shorter sermons because we think people might come? Do we pick songs that sing uh, that we sing that are less about God's glory and more about us and our worries? Do we get scared in church to challenge people to turn from their sin and grow in their faith because we're afraid they might come back if we try to challenge them? There's also a few attitudes that we can kind of think about ourselves as we reflect on this. Are we apathetic about attending a church service? Would we secretly rather stay home and watch football than go and worship God in song and be with his people and other believers? Are we lethargic about reading God's word regularly? When we see a person call us from church, do we feel like that person's bugging us because they're calling us to ask for prayer one more time? So those are a few actions and attitudes we can think about in our lives. But now here in the middle of this evidence, in verses 9 through 11, sandwiched between the actions of Israel and the attitudes of Israel, God provides a way for Israel to get right with them, in verses 9 through 11. God might be prosecutor, judge, and jury, but he's also loving and merciful. And here he gives them a way to get out of the trouble that they're in. He provides a way for them to be declared innocent, even though they are guilty. And he says in verse 9 that God, he says he wants dedication from his people, not perfection. Verse 9 reads, But now will you not entreat God's favor, that he may be gracious to us? With such an offering on your part, will he receive any of you kindly, says the Lord of hosts. So, so now in the middle of this evidence presentation, God gives them a chance to get off the hook. As judge, jury, and prosecutor, he takes the defendant into the back court chambers, to the judge's chambers, into his private office. He sits the Israelites down and he says, look, if you just try to do what is all right, that is okay. I know you haven't always been perfect, and you won't always be perfect in the past, but I at least want you to try and be dedicated to me and make an effort, is what he's saying which is inherent to the idea of a sacrifice. A sacrifice was required because God presupposed they were going to sin and they needed it anyway. So it's kind of inherent of what he is saying there. And in verse 10, God wants, he tells us that he wants no offering at all if it's not done with right motives. And verse 10 reads, 
Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the gates, that you might not uselessly kindle fire on my altar. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord of hosts, nor will I accept an offering from you. This verse reminds us that God doesn't need our offerings, and he doesn't need our worship. He is complete and sufficient without us, and he doesn't need us to worship him. But he wants us to worship him as a sign that we're committed to him. These offerings were a sign that the people of Israel were indebted to God for life and for blessings. Giving him offerings was a way to give, to acknowledge his goodness and his faithfulness. Then in verse 11, God says that he wants dedication from a people, even if it's not Israel, he tells them. Verse 11. For from the rising of the sun, even to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense is going to be offered to my name, and a grain offering that is pure. For not, my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. Now notice in my translation, the NASB, the first word in verse 11 is the word for. And here at the beginning of that verse, what follows describes is what God is going to do because of Israel's repeated disobedience and disregard for God. This verse predicts a future time when Gentiles will see the light and become worshipers of God. And that's described in the book of Acts. Because at this time in the Old Testament, God's focus is on the nation of Israel and trying to bless them and make them his holy nation. But after hundreds of years of Israel disobeying him and the gospel being offered to them in the book of Acts, God will shift from the nation of Israel and turn the gospel to the nations, which is what this, this verse is saying. is If Israel isn't going to worship me, then I'll share the gospel with everybody else and let them worship me. So that's the evidence that God, God presents against Israel. Then in verse 14, we get the verdict. Israel is cursed, and God turns to the other nations. Verse 14 reads, But cursed be the swindler who has a male in his flock and vows to it, but sacrifices a blemished animal to the Lord. For I am great, I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name is feared among the nations. God's decision is that they are guilty. The word cursed here in verse 14 means to remove from a place of blessing or to banish someone away. It is the loss of God's blessing. And that this applies to two groups that he's talking to here. He's talking to the priests and he's talking to the people of Israel. To the priests, as we'll learn about next week, uh, he says that he's going to remove them from their role as priests and cut them off from the blessings promised to them. Actually, in two weeks, when we look at Malachi 2, after Daniel and Lindsay appear next week. But to the people, we'll see less and less of God's blessings in the future if they continue in this manner. God had made his decision. He's announced them guilty. He's pounded the gavel, and the decision has been made. It's over. So as we look at this trial of Israel, how does this relate to us? Okay? I don't have a goat stored in the back office that we're about to bring out here and slaughter. It's a little different time period for us. Things work differently for us as Gentiles after Jesus has come. But how does this trial connect with us? 
and it relates to how we give our best to God. Because God deserves our best for two reasons. One, he gave us his best, which was his son. He gave us his one and only son. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. So God deserves our best because he gave his best of his son, but he also gave his best of his spirit. See, when Jesus was living and he was about to leave, he told the disciples, I'm going to leave from you, but God is going to send someone else in my place. John 14, 26 says, But the Helper, which is the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to you your remembrance, all that I said to you. So God deserves our best because he sent his Son, and because he sent his Spirit, the second and third member of the Trinity, who are people, part of our God. But he also gets our best when we give him our best time. So God deserves our best, but he also, he gets our best when we give him the best of our time. This means we should give God the best part of our day, whether we're a morning person and we wake up early, maybe having a little quiet time with him, or if we're a night person and everybody else is asleep, and we go to sleep with them, or we, we get to have some quiet time with God. We need to carve out some quality time for God and give him our best time of the day. Now, I know some of you might have a couple kids you have to watch and life is a little crazy you have an elderly parent or two you watch and life is always crazy good quality time might be four minutes where you go in the bathroom you shut the door you crawl into the the bathtub and no one can find you and that's your five minutes that's that's okay you know that's all you got that's your good quality time with god that you spend with him but it also should be quantity time we should make time for God in our busy schedules. A lot of people, we have uh, phones now that give us our daily screen time at the end of the week. A little notice pops up on the phone that says you spent five minutes a day or whatever it is on your daily screen time. But if that popped up in your life for God time, what would it reveal? How much time are you spending daily with God and Him? So God gets our best when we give Him our best of our time and when we give him the best of our money, right? We should give to God first before we pay our bills as a sign that we're giving God our best. Just like the Israelites, they gave the best of their animals, they gave the first of their crops and their grain. We should give to God before we pay our bills. Years ago, I was having lunch with a guy that was part of our church at another church I worked at, and I wanted to get to know his story. He kind of had a unique background, so I took him to lunch. And we're just talking, I'm just trying to get to know him. And he starts talking about tithing. Like, he brought it up, not me. So I'll make sure that's clear. And he says, I just can't tithe the church. I can't give 10%. I have my own bills. I just can't justify giving God 10% when I have my own bills. Like, okay. I, I thought we were just hanging out talking, but this has become confession time, which is okay. Um, so I just listened and we talked. And I said something about we'll start with 1% or whatever. I don't remember exactly what I said. But it was very clear he didn't have enough money to tithe to church like he thought he should. And then the next day after that lunch, I was thinking, you know, last Saturday we did this barbecue event for the guys. And we, we uh, played horseshoes at the park. We made a big barbecue. We just had fun with the guys just to hang out for our men's ministry. And there was this guy that showed up a little late with this brand new Harley Davidson motorcycle. 
And there's a lot of guys that rode motorcycles at our church. So as soon as he pulled up, all the guys, they get around him, and he's talking about it. And those things are twenty or $25,000, I believe. And say, that was the guy. So the issue wasn't availability. It was priority for him. The Harley was more important than, than tithing and giving to God. So God gets our best when we give him the best of our time, when we give him the best of our money, and we give him the best of our skills. We should do ministry in God's church in areas that we know we can do well at and excel. For example, if someone has spent 20 or 30 years working as a CPA and always working with numbers, if the church wants to start a counseling ministry or something like that, that might not be an area where his skills match. Or likewise, if the church needs someone to run payroll and do books, someone that has spent their life doing counseling probably doesn't have the best skills to help in those areas. right? So we should be at church using our skills in areas we know we can serve him well and help out. That's the quality, good quality work that we give to God with our skills. But it also should be quantity. We should be serving in God's church and being part of God's church as part of our Christian walk. Just as we attend a church service and be in a small group, we also should have a ministry. And when we do this, what are the results? When we give God our best, it protects God's reputation. Because when Christians act like fools and do disgraceful things, it gives God a bad reputation. The whole movement that started in, in America, you know, I like Jesus, but I like the church, really stems from church people that aren't acting like Jesus. When I worked as a caddy at a golf course, I used to talk to these caddies, and they knew I was a Christian in seminary, and they'd tell me this story about this pastor here that had an affair with a woman in his church, and this pastor on TV that embezzled all this money, and this guy had all these stories and I just kind of listened, but I honestly sometimes thought, I'm not sure if this guy has ever met a true Christian that is walking with God, that is showing him, you know, what that looks like and is honoring God with his activities. They're all true stories, but I wondered, do they ever have someone that they can personally know that is protecting God's reputation and honoring God in the way he or she lives? So when we give God our best, it protects God's reputation, but it also proclaims God's character. Notice here in this passage, God's name, you might have seen, is mentioned throughout. It's mentioned in verse 6. It's mentioned three times in verse 11. It's mentioned again in verse 14. So Israel has a problem, but the problem really is it's dishonoring God's name. And when we honor God's name, it proclaims his character. When we give God our best, it fits his character. We're comparing kind of apples to apples, so to speak. God deserves the best because he is the best. And when we give God our best with our time, money, and skills, it proclaims God's character to others. So as we wrap up our time together, if God was going to look at your life, what would the accusations be? If he was going to look at your life and place you on trial, what would those accusations be? And what would the evidence be? When the Israelites brought those sacrifices to God, and they were blemished and they were not perfect, there really was only two people that knew they were not perfect. God and the people. You couldn't tell if an animal was deaf or blind when they brought it for the sacrifice. 
They brought grain. There's no way to know if that was the first of their grain or the most hardy and healthy. Only the Israelites and God knew if it was truly their best they were offering to him. So when God looks at your life, only you and him probably know about those accusations against you. Your co-workers don't know. Your family doesn't know. But you know, and God knows. So whatever that secret accusation might be, I encourage you to confess it to God because he forgives all sins. He has offered that perfect sacrifice on our behalf that cleanses us from those. Ask him for help to overcome it, and he'll help you work through it. And start by giving him your best. Because he doesn't expect perfection, but God does desire our dedication to him. Because God is the best, and he deserves the best. Let's pray. God, thank you for us getting to read these words to your